Welcome to the very first episode of Air Checks. I am your host, Ty Rosenau. This show focuses on radio shows from old-time radio to current shows written as plays or when the radio show was recorded. A showcase of radio programming that may have been lost over the decades if it hadn't been recorded and preserved for future generations. In the radio and television industry, recordings of radio shows were fairly common, anywhere from transcription discs for later replay, or to make sure a commercial had been played on the air for salesmen to show their client. Airchecks is a three-hour program that is uploaded into a podcast on Saturdays and Sundays for radio shows across the nation, internationally, and for you, the listener. In the first and second episode, I see fitting that I start off with a full compilation put out by the Longines Symphonic Society in 1969, starring Jack Benny and Frank Knight as the hosts. This six-record set, called Golden Memories of Radio, is a good introduction to some of the shows that were represented on Airchecks. Without further ado, here's part of the Longines Symphonic Society's Golden Memories of Radio. Again, this is Jack Benny welcoming you on behalf of the Longine Symphonette for a warm visit to a magic world and to a golden treasure chest of memory, entertainment, excitement, drama, and world history. Yep, we are going to explore the world of golden radio. I was part of radio as it developed, just as I am part of television. I share with Bing Crosby, Bob Hope, Red Skelton, George Burns, Lucille Ball, Arthur Godfrey, and many others, a common heritage in radio. I'd like to help you enjoy again those nostalgic moments when the family gathered together in the living room to share the make-believe world of radio. We will look in on comedy, drama, suspense, news, and the people who made it all possible. By the nature of radio, we as performers shared with you, our listeners, the creative best in our lives. We worked together, and for that reason, radio became part of our growing up together. Before we get started, though, I'd like to tell those of you who are just discovering the golden days of radio how it differs from today's television. Radio was really do-it-yourself television. Instead of a big, ugly glass picture tube, you saw the performers in your own mind. You were not restricted by the boundaries of a 21-inch tube, but instead painted your own big-as-life version of each moment with that loving, creative brush we call imagination. Now, just in case you're out of practice, here's a little test to demonstrate the power of your imagination. No, don't open that door, McGee! Didn't you see that fabulous closet just as clearly as though it was on the largest full-color television screen imaginable? Why, every time McGee opened that door, a million Americans saw a closet in their own homes. 
Now let's try a more ambitious test of your imaginative power. And as we do, we'll start our sentimental journey back to the golden years of radio. When that instrument was a golden cornucopia from which poured the wealth of the greatest entertainers in history. Here is Bing Crosby on his Philco Radio Time Show, the night he entertained two guests. Let me alone, I'll get it, I'll get it. <laughs> Just a minute, hey, say you. Huh? Have you ever played this number before, bub? Played it, I yeah. made it. <laughs> well, I should have known, Jack Benny. I certainly expected you tonight, Jack. I expected you over, but I didn't expect to find you in the orchestra. I can't understand it. I've, I've never played so poorly. <laughs> oh, cheer up, Jack. Sure you have. Thanks, kid. But I, I, I practiced all morning to limber up. I even washed my fingers and does. <laughs> does doesn't do it, I'm dead. <laughs> Better switch to Wheaties, kid. But, Jack, I thought Mary was going to come with you. Where is she? Oh, she stopped by the Musicians' Union to pay my dues. Do you, be you belong to the Musicians' Union? Don't act so shocked. Well, then, I've heard of that. Of course I belong to the Musicians' Union. I'm one of the charter members. You see, years ago, I had a little band. We all joined together. Oh, I know the group well. A fife, a drum, and a guy with a bandage around his head. <laughs> I've had nothing. <laughs> Look, I don't mean the spirit of 76. My band was called Jack Benny and his Sizzling Gobblers. Sizzling Gobblers? That's the line they gave me. Yeah. <laughs> we specialized in turkey trot. That's the line. That's the... <laughs> And I bet your drummer had drumsticks that were really drumsticks. Yeah, he used to drive me crazy with that munching during my solo. <laughs> Can't understand it. Bill Morrow used to write for me. <laughs> anyway, Bing, Bing, what I wanted to see you about is a business proposition. Uh, uh, what are you going to do this summer? I'm going to take a vacation. Well, I've got an idea where you and I could combine business with pleasure. I'm afraid not, Jack. But, Bing, I mean, this is a chance to pick up some extra money. And that never hurts, you know. Oh, no, it's spending that hurts, isn't it? <laughs> that's, that's ridiculous. It doesn't bother me. Uh, don't knock it till you've tried it. <laughs> well, Mary Livingston. <laughs> yeah, get a load of her all decked out like Mrs. Astor's horse. Listen, Mary, you never get all dressed up like that on my program. Well, how often do I sit on Bing Crosby's lap? Well, you're not on Crosby's lap. Wait till I get rolling. <laughs> Mary, just kidding, Bing. Nothing will happen. You keep out of this. Fine. Listen, I've been thinking of this for years, and I might as well come right and, out and say it. What do all the women see in Bing Crosby? Look at him. <laughs> hey, he's... You know, he's got blue eyes like mine, though. Blue eyes like mine. You can stop there, brother. Mary, all I want to know is... Did you go to the Musicians' Union and pay my dues? Yes. All right, Mary, where's my card? Here. Just a minute, this isn't a musician's card. Oh, I forgot to tell you. They transferred you to the Plumbers' Union. 
The plumber's union? Your plunger arrives tomorrow. <laughs> what? I can't wait to hear your first solo. <laughs> Gonna be asleep on the deep, huh? Is your imagination getting tuned up? Good. Our radio pioneered most of the kind of shows you see on television today. Humor, for example, breaks down into two basic formats, the variety show and the situation comedy. Both forms reached a peak in radio. I asked George Burns to select a favorite episode of the George Burns and Gracie Allen show from his own personal collection. As the new half-century gets underway, the favorite pastime seems to be choosing the outstanding men of the last half-century. Magazines and newspapers have published their selections, but Gracie seems to think one important name has been omitted. Thomas Edison, Winston Churchill. How can they pick men like that to head the list? I'm interested to know, Gracie. Who's your choice? Need you ask, George. I'm thinking of a man whose glorious romantic voice has thrilled millions. The birds are sweetly singing and perfume flowers are bringing in the wind oh, tonight. A man whose charm and talent are world famous. Gracie, this is getting embarrassing. Only one man should top this list. Charles Boyer. <laughs> Charles Boyer? Mm -hmm. You put him ahead of Edison? Yep. Edison invented electric lights. With Boyer, who needs them? <laughs> Gracie, there are there's some pretty great men on this list. Not as great as Boyer. But uh, look at these names. Arturo Toscanini, conductor. How do you like that? A man who punches transfers. <laughs> he happens to be a musical conductor. All right, so he hums while he punches transfers. Hums Dardanella. And here, here's another one, Einstein. Now, what did he do? Einstein? Yes. What did he do? Uh-huh. He's the father of relativity. Oh, what does she do? <laughs> Relativity Einstein? Yeah. She's with Warner Brothers. <laughs> you know, Gracie, for a minute there, instead of Boyer, I thought that you thought that I belonged on that list of great men. Oh, oh, well, you see, George, you're my husband, and I don't think of you as a man. <laughs> well, thanks. I mean, I, I don't think of you as a man who does anything. <laughs> Thanks again I mean, I don't think of you as a man who does anything romantic A triple thanks and stop thinking about it Oh, now I've hurt your feelings And I didn't mean to, George You know, I'd rather be married to you than any man on this list Churchill, Edison, Stalin, Hitler <laughs> You have just earned my fourth thank you. When you think of the golden age of radio, you're bound to remember the performer whose hold on the heartstrings of America spanned almost three generations, vaudeville to radio and then to television. When he died, a whole nation mourned his loss. I love to spend each Sunday with you. 
as friend to friend I'm sorry it's true I'm telling you Just how I feel I hope you feel That way too Eddie Cantor, of course. Now, very early in the development of radio came two characters called Sam and Henry. Once the name was changed to Amos and Andy, a new national pastime was invented. Why, well, I can remember walking past motion picture theaters in the 30s and seeing the signs that promised to stop the movie and turn on the radio when it came Amos and Andy time. You know, Andy, it's a great thing for us, this job with the construction company. Oh, yeah, and I like that Mr. Carter, the head of the company. He sure was nice to us when he gave us the tools this morning. Oh, yeah, he is a real gentleman. I tell you, I never... Uh, I'll get it. Hello, George Kingfish Stevens speaking. Hello, this is Mr. Carter of the Carter Construction Company. Oh, yes, Mr. Carter, how's you this evening? See here, what are you and Brown trying to pull? Why didn't you show up on that porch wrecking job this morning? Uh, well, you see, we, uh, we, uh, uh, excuse me, you say something about slowing up on that porch wrecking job. I said, why didn't you and Brown show up on that porch wrecking job? Well, I, uh, uh, uh Miss Carter, uh, excuse me, uh, we got a bad disconnection here. Can't you hear what I'm saying? Yeah, I can hear what you were saying, but I know you ain't saying what I is hearing. <laughs> Uh, look, Miss Carter, uh, the phones all mess up here. I tell you what, I'll hang up and you call me right back. Very well. What's the trouble, Kingsley? Oh, I don't know, Andy. The phone is messed up or my ears done jammed up on me. <laughs> uh, you take the call when the man calls back. Uh, okay, I'll, uh, wait a minute. Uh, hello, Andy Brown speaking. Oh, it's you, Brown. Can you hear what I'm saying? Oh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. You're coming through fine. Good. Now, what is it you want to tell me? I want to know why you and Stevens didn't show up to wreck that porch this morning. I, uh... <laughs> Hold the phone. Kingfish, get back on here. This man is all confused. <laughs> uh, hello, Miss Carter. Stevens back on here. Look, Stevens, what's going on? You and Brown are completely confused. We is confused. You is the one that's confused. We spent the whole day today wrecking the porch over at 4565 Amsterdam Avenue. 4565 Amsterdam Avenue? That's fine. Well, thank you, sir. That's just great. Yeah, we thought it was a nice job, yeah. The porch you were supposed to wreck was at 666 Riverside Drive. Uh, Miss Carter, is you there? Yes. Well, Miss Carter, this time, let's both hang up and don't nobody call nobody back. That was part one of Longines Symphony Society's Golden Memories of Radio, entitled Remember Golden Radio. Here we go with part two featuring daytime radio and commercials. 
radio was responsible for many great inventions. The ladies in particular took to their hearts one such development, the daytime serial. Now this kind of drama was unique and owed its success, I imagine, to the fact that it dwelt on real kinds of problems that were solved five days a week. The characters became family friends. Listeners wrote with advice, sent anniversary gifts, holiday cards, and remembered birthdays. It didn't take long for the daytime serial to be known affectionately as the soap opera, named after the sponsors. Let's listen in. Oh, Lorenzo Jones. The rocky road that winds through Joyland Amusement Park, the Jones' latest venture, is paved with good intentions, the chief of which is Lorenzo's plan to sell his newly discovered sofa water as a cure-all. He's persuaded Bell to let him try it out, using their chicken barbecue stand as a base for operations. Lorenzo's nephew, Henry Whitcomb, thinks, as always, that his uncle Lorenzo has something there. Henry's wife, Nellie, suddenly stage-struck, is interested in a screen test ever since a moving picture director working with a group of actors in Townville has casually asked Nellie to come over and watch them work. Today, Lorenzo, Belle, and Henry are at the barbecue stand preparing for the first customers to try out Lorenzo's sulfur water. Let's listen. All right, Henry, now if you'll grab hold of the other end of this barrel of sulfur water, we'll set it right here on the counter of the barbecue stand. Now, Lorenzo, you and Henry be careful. Don't knock over those glasses and dishes I've stacked up. All right, we'll be careful, Aunt Bell. Easy, easy, Henry. Henry, uh, uh, turn to this side with the uh, figure facing us. Yeah. That's right. There. There. Now, my good wife, we're ready for the crowd that'll come here today to try out my sulfur water. Well, dear, I only hope your new health drink won't interfere with the sale of my barbecued chicken. Well, Belle, you see, the, the healthier they get imbibing my super sulfur potion the more portions of chicken we'll sell. That's right, Uncle Lorenzo. Sure. The healthier I feel, the more I want to eat. Gee, do you think we'll have a big crowd out here today? Uh, well, the, the big crowd, Henry. Well, here comes the first auto of the cavalcade now. <laughs> You'll find people coming out in droves, thanks to the power of American advertising genius. Another $50 worth of handbills judiciously distributed, and we'll have everybody in the world calling for sulfur water. Well, dear, maybe you're right, but... Aren't we supposed to have a permit or a license to sell a health drink? Well, a, a, a permit to help people regain their vim, vigor, and vitality? Well, Belle, who, who ever heard of the Good Samaritan with a druggist license, well, huh? Yeah. I suppose I'm wrong, but things are always happening to us. And... The following program will be interrupted for any important war bulletins. And now... The Romance of Helen Trent. The Romance of Helen Trent. The real-life drama of Helen Trent, who, when life mocks her, breaks her hopes, dashes her against the rocks of despair, fights back bravely, successfully, to prove what so many women long to prove in their own lives, that because a woman is 35 or more, romance in life need not be over, that romance can begin at 35. Now for our story.
just slain Bill. Danger threatens Bill Davidson and Nancy, his beloved daughter, and Kelly Donovan, her husband, because of the mysterious, sinister actions of Ira Brewster, who beat Kelly for district attorney by lying about Nancy's supposed parentage. Why, it's you, Mr. Willoughby. Hello, Bill. Well, I didn't expect to see you way down here in Hartville again tonight. Why, you look all in. I am rather tired, Bill. It's been a long, confusing day for me. Uh, here, Mr. Willoughby, uh, sit down. Uh, let me call Nancy. She's back in the kitchen. I'll have her bring in some hot coffee. Uh, maybe you'd like something to eat. Oh, no, Bill, thanks. Don't bother Nancy. Oh, Nancy will want to hear whatever you've got to tell me. Oh, Nancy. Yes, Daddy? What is it? Uh, Mr. Willoughby's here. Uh, you better come in. Oh, and bring some coffee, will you? Oh, yes, Daddy. I'll be in in a minute. Life was never simple and easy for the real-life characters in our soap operas. Marriage, separation, illness, even death played a part. The heroines came from all walks of life, even from the theater itself. And now, Mary Noble, backstage wife. Mary has been the victim of a false friend, Armand Delubac, who took her diamond engagement ring with the promise of having it repaired. But instead, Armand pawned the ring and tried to blackmail Mary and Larry. And when Marsha Mannering tried to make it appear that Mary was in love with Armand and had given the ring to him, she turned Larry violently against her. And thereupon, Marsha conspires with Armand to get even with Mary and Larry. When Mary and Larry later discover that the ring has disappeared from the shop, Mary is heartbroken. And Larry resolves at last to notify the police. Well, Mary... Here's our story in all the afternoon papers. Yes, Larry, I've seen it. Famous actor reports theft of wife's jewels to police. A very concise and accurate statement of facts, I'd say. And you certainly can't feel that this is very damaging publicity, Mary. You got around it very nicely, Larry. Well, the police have cooperated, too, in not revealing anything to the press except what's printed right here. But well, I still have the sinking feeling that something bad's about to happen, Larry. The doom's hanging over our heads. Well, I've managed so far to keep those reporters from getting a hold of me. They've been banging at the door all morning, clamoring for more details, but if I can just continue to duck them, I don't think that any more will leak out. Well, it's not only the reporters I'm afraid of. What do you mean? You're taking this thing awfully hard, Mary. Oh, Larry, what's going to happen when or if the police do catch Armand or whoever it is that has my ring? Well, we'll just get the ring back and prosecute the scoundrel, that's all. But... Don't you see? You'll still have to go through all that mess of a criminal trial. All right, baby, so what? But unless we can be perfectly sure of presenting the facts believably, the public will turn against you. They might think on the face of it that you're prosecuting an innocent man. Mary, I, I wish you wouldn't be arguing against me in this thing. I've done what I think best in order to get back your engagement ring. I know you have, Larry, dear, and I love you for it. As radio changed its role, old favorites faded from the scene. For example, I know that many people shed a quiet tear with Ma Perkins. I suppose our youngsters would say cornball or square. And now, CBS Radio brings you Ma Perkins. What could be more appropriate today than to turn the clock back to join Ma and the folks at Thanksgiving dinner? Ma and the family have so much to give thanks for. Let's join them all. They haven't yet sat down. In the kitchen, we find Faye and Evie and Ma. Listen. 
<laughs> Shuffle and Willie are so hungry. Come on, honey. Let's get the cranberries. Look at the turkey. And now, here's Ma again. Thank you, Dan. This is our broadcast number 7065. I first came here on December 4th, 1933. Thank you for all being so loyal to us these 27 years. The part of Willie has been played right from the beginning by Murray Forbes. Shuffle was played for 25 years by Charles Eggleston and for the last two years by Edwin Wolfe, who was also our director. The fay you have been hearing these past few years has been Margaret Draper, and the part was played for many years by Rita Ascot. For 15 years, our Evie has been Kay Campbell. Helen Lewis plays Gladys, and Tom Wells has been played by both John Larkin and Casey Allen. Our announcer is Dan Donaldson. Our writer for more than 20 years has been Oren Tavroff. Ma Perkins has always been played by me, Virginia Payne. If you care to write to me, Ma Perkins, I'll try to answer you. Goodbye, and may God bless you. Another kind of daytime radio program was the interview show. Perhaps you remember two of the most famous as the Noontime Kate Smith Show and Mary Margaret McBride. Now, Mary Margaret McBride is still on radio in many cities. Certainly, she must own a record for her first broadcast went on the air in New York, May 3rd, 1934. Her guests have ranged from the great political figures to folks in the news. I don't know whether this is really a respectful way to speak about a vice president, but one of your, uh, one of the boys who uh, do some work around your office, Mr. Vice President Barkley, said to me, doesn't that guy ever get tired? <laughs> and I said, well, how would I know? He said, well, I didn't mean you to answer the question. It was just one of those rhetorical yeah. questions. Yeah. He just said that you tire them all out. Somebody at the... Uh... Meet the press yesterday. Out in the audience, asked me that question if I never got tired. And what'd you if say? I, I said I, I have never had a feeling of fatigue or exhaustion in my life. I've always worked hard, but it may be a bad thing because if I got tired, I might go off and lie down and rest now and then. But never getting tired, I just keep on. Uh huh. That's my answer, and that's the truth. I never do have a sense of fatigue or exhaustion. Never in your whole life. I bet you that means you don't worry. No, I don't, really. I don't mean that I don't uh, think things over seriously, but I, I, I've got a philosophical view that worry it doesn't solve anything. And they tell me it creates ulcers in the stomach. Oh, yes. <laughs> I've known them to get it. <laughs> now, Mrs. Barkley, you can tell us whether he really lives by this or whether this is one of those things men say now and then. No, it really is true. I can't possibly keep up with him, and I can tell you a cute little story about him that 
someone told on him when he was campaigning in 1948. It was either in 48 or 50. And he was touring very, very uh, terrifically heavy schedule over Kentucky in a very small plane, which was piloted by a good friend of his. And a couple of the young men that were helping out, my husband out were along also. And he'd been hopping all over Kentucky for weeks and speaking here, there, and everywhere, making five and six speeches a day. And he had all the men absolutely beat down. He, of course, feeling perfectly fine. They got in the plane to take off to go on to their next engagement, and the pilot, who's an old friend of my husband's, said that he just absolutely was so worn out from this terrific campaign and from trying to keep up with him, with not nearly enough rest for an ordinary, normal person to go on, that he was in the, uh, had the con at the controls, of course, and to his utter horror, he suddenly came to and realized that he had dozed and found the vice president very calmly just flying the plane. He knows nothing about it whatsoever at all, absolutely nothing. And the pilot was so frightened for just a minute, he didn't quite know what to do. It gave him an awful shock. And he said, oh, oh my, Mr. Vice President, he said, for goodness sake. And my husband said, well, that's all right, Charlie. He said, you look like you were kind of tired and needed a little nap. <laughs> of course, it was one of those little bitty planes, I must explain it. Almost Charlie Gartrell. Yes, that's it was, Charlie Gartrell. And he said, you just whipped him down, absolutely. <laughs> Oh, I don't know how you do this thing. But uh, well, uh, I, I certainly would have been a little bit... That means he's never afraid either. No, he has the nerve in his body, not one. Now, back around 1926, radio invented something else. Sponsors. Sponsors have provided comedians with more jokes than the Los Angeles smog. Red Skelton made his first radio appearance in 1937 on the Rudy Valley Show. And soon after, he was credited with this comment. The longest word in the English language is the one that follows. And now a word from our sponsor. But one of the reasons both radio and television were able to provide free entertainment of the highest caliber was the advertisers who paid the bills. I'm sure you'll find a chuckle or two in these famous radio commercials. The first you hear is from Interwoven Socks, reputed to be the first singing commercial. The singers are the famed Billy Jones and Ernie Hare, who were known as the Happiness Boys. How do you do, everybody? How do you do? Gee, it's great to say hello to all of you. I'm Billy Jones. I'm Ernie Hare. We're the Interwoven Bears. How do you do? Talk to Brushless shaving cream supreme Leaves your face so smooth and clean Pepsi Cola hits the spot Twelve full ounces, that's a lot Twice as much for a nickel too Pepsi Cola is the drink for you Rinse white and rinse bright L-A-V-A, L-A-V-A This is Sandy Becker saying Keep cooking with Crisco It's all vegetable it's digestible. Longine is not lightly called the world's most honored watch. For Longine watches have won 10 World's Fair grand prizes and 28 gold medals. Longine watches have also won more honors for accuracy than any other timepiece. Longine, the world's most honored watch, 
is a product of the Long Jean Whitnor Watch Company. Well, that's the end of the first hour, but we will have more in the next hour featuring the great radio comedians on Air Jacks.